This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, a new vision of aging. Support CARP with your membership today. Visit carp.ca. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Christine Ross for Libby's Nimer. We look back at how Canada handled the last pandemic a hundred years ago. And the pandemic has many going back to their roots, literally harvesting their backyard gardens for pickling and canning, a tradition passed down from generations. But first, here are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. The man believed to be the first person in the world to be cured of HIV has died from cancer at 54. Timothy Ray Brown, who made history as the Berlin patient, died this week at his California home. When his cancer was first diagnosed in 2007, he received bone marrow and stem cell transplants that for years eliminated both his leukemia and HIV, the virus that causes AIDS. The Berlin doctor who treated Brown said many scientists doubted this historic treatment would work. At the time of Brown's death, there was no presence of the HIV virus. Jimmy Carter, the oldest living former president in U.S. history, turned 96 this week. The peanut farmer went on to graduate from the U.S. Naval Academy, served as Georgia's governor, and eventually became the 39th president. Carter was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize in 2002 for his humanitarian work. In 2015, he underwent groundbreaking immunotherapy treatments for melanoma that had spread to both his liver and his brain. Good evening, everybody. It is an honor to be here at my last, and perhaps the last, White House Correspondents Day. Former President Barack Obama and former First Lady Michelle Obama now hold the top spots for most admired man and woman in the world. British data firm YouGov's annual poll says the former president ousted Microsoft co-founder and philanthropist Bill Gates for the title for the first time since the organization started the survey back in 2014. Michelle Obama is ranked number one for the second year in a row, ahead of actress and philanthropist Angelina Jolie and Queen Elizabeth. This year's Terry Fox Run received a 20% bump in fundraising, despite being run virtually because of the pandemic. A Terry Fox Foundation spokesperson says more than 80,000 people took part this month, and people are still registering to fundraise, even though the official event has ended. Canadian Zoomers may not be shelling out big bucks on hotels, dining, and foreign travel, but we're splurging on the outdoors. Retailers in outdoor travel and sports and recreation saw a big boost in spending as people stayed close to home, according to the country's largest payment processing company. Sales of boats and recreational trailers were up 26% over last year, and in Ontario, sales of camping gear shot up almost 50%. Home supply stores also saw a spike of 31%, and consumers bought more swimming pools and bikes. It's the Great Pumpkin! He's 
sticking up out of the pumpkin patch. This week, some giant pumpkins smashed the state record in Utah. The first place pumpkin weighed an incredible 1,825 pounds. That's more than a mature Holstein cow, the black and white spotted breed that typically weighs 1,500 pounds. The hefty gourd was the largest pumpkin to be grown outside of a greenhouse, and the second largest pumpkin ever grown in the state. That's a lot of pumpkin pies. I'm Christine Ross, and those are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. As we head into the second wave of the coronavirus, it's instructive to remember that Canada went through this a hundred years ago. The death toll was staggering, pegged at between 50 and 100 million worldwide. But many, like Edward Arda of Toronto, survived. Here's an entry from his diary Tuesday, October 15th. Fair. Feeling very miserable. Head aching. Stomach in bad shape and chest bad. Managed to give my 10 a.m. lecture. But spent afternoon over the fire at the Union. Crawled home in the evening and got into bed. Wednesday, October 16th. Feeling very sick with chest and stomach. Miss McMurray came in to see me in the evening. Missed my lecture for the first time since I've begun to deliver the same. Some of those symptoms are eerily similar to today, as was the rush to try unproven remedies. But we've come a long way, starting with our ability to get a handle on the numbers. Libby Snymer spoke with historian Neil Orford. What we have learned through the research, of course, Libby, is that the statistics associated with calculating the numbers of death, both those who were afflicted by it and those who ultimately succumbed to it, is a very inaccurate science. The statistics are not clear. Globally, we have many nations that didn't keep the kinds of statistics that、uh, we kept in the British Empire. And at the time, of course, for a long period of time, the influenza itself was not a disease that was reportable. Many countries were not in a position to declare it a, a cause of death. And so they called it pneumonia or bronchial pneumonia, a number of different things. It's really difficult to nail down. So apparently, Up to half a billion people were actually infected with it. We believe, yes. It has also been called the Spanish flu, but no one believes that it originated in Spain. No, it's one of those、uh, great misnomers in history that、uh, I, I'm sure the Spanish people、uh, regret deeply, and historians also regret now, certainly in the 21st century. But Spain was a neutral country in the First World War, and the occurrence of the flu was just、uh, the same in Spain as it was anywhere else. But because they didn't have wartime censorship, the reporters、uh, felt no restrictions in reporting on what was going on and the outbreak. Uh, in Spain. And so around the world, it was picked up as an influenza outbreak that was really, really enormous in Spain. However, of course, it was happening everywhere else. Countries were just not at liberty to report on it the way they were in neutral countries like Spain. It spread very rapidly, killing 25 million people in just the first six months? Yes. And, and we, we, we're at a point where we believe that could be a conservative estimate given the outbreaks in China, the outbreaks in India, places that we really don't have a good handle on the numbers. We think that could be even a conservative estimate. The actual virus was not fully identified until the 1930s. And what we believe is that it was a variant of the H1N1 that we currently have going around quite frequently. It's avian in origins. But the conditions of the First World War certainly 
caused an incubation of something that was very, very substantially different from what had been seen in the world before. This did not kill most of the people who were infected with it, correct? That's right. So the death rate still was about 20%. That's pretty high. Well, it is. And and of course, we have to take into consideration this is before penicillin. This is before uh, the kinds of antibacterial drugs that were available even by the 1930s. Most of the people succumbed to secondary infections as a result of getting the flu. And the distance between getting the flu and succumbing to those secondary infections was often very small. It was a, a very short period of time. What did they use to treat it? <laughs> well, uh, we have uh, we have done some great research and, of course, found all kinds of home remedies and, you know, we might call them quackery today, but I think we have to be fair and give due credit to the context of the times and the desperation that many people felt that some of the home remedies, some of the traditional remedies that came uh, associated with other cultures from around the world were treated very seriously by the people at the time. And so while it might look a little on the quackery side today, people took them very seriously at the time, but they certainly had minimal impact upon the pace of the pandemic. I've read that at the time, medical authorities recommended large doses of aspirin, up to 30 grams a day, and that might actually have contributed to the deaths. Yeah, there's some research on that, particularly in the United States, where this was recommended. What finally ended the pandemic? It ran its course, and likely the end of the war contributed to it. But as well, people's uh, behavior had significantly changed. And in Canada, we had developed management practices associated with public health, which also mitigated the end of it. And so people's habits were beginning to change very rapidly, almost as rapidly as the flu itself, and their understanding of how to keep proper hygiene and how to uh, take care of one's personal health changed. And then the federal government created the um, Ministry of Health, the Department of National Health in 1919, which had a really important effect upon taking management of communicable diseases from sort of an individual treatment to a more of a community base. And that's where public health in Canada really started. And I hesitate to say it's thanks to the flu pandemic, but I think we can trace the emergence of robust and effective public health in Canada back to the impact of the flu pandemic. Okay. Neil Orford, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Libby. Really appreciate it. That was Libby Zneimer speaking with historian Neil Orford. That conversation first aired in October of 2018. I'm Christine Ross, and this is the Zoomer Week in Review. Love fresh Ontario produce? Or did you grow way more than your family can eat in the backyard garden and want to preserve it for year-round access? From canning to pickling, preserves to jellies, Colette Murphy owns seed company Urban Harvest, and she's been preserving food for over a half a century. No matter the reason, nostalgia, saving money, or if you want to eat locally year-round, Colette shares some tips for beginners and experts alike. We found that in the spring, as soon as uh, we were hit by a pandemic, people wanted to garden. I think that food security became a, a big issue, and certainly canning helps with our food security. It's really lovely to have your cupboards full of things you've grown in your garden and be able to preserve, you know, preserve them to eat all winter. And money-saving probably too. Absolutely. Maybe not time-saving, but definitely (laughs) money-saving. So what got you interested in the first place? You say you've been doing this for 50 plus years? Well, I was started doing it when I'm in my late teens. I've always loved to garden and, um, you know, I've lived in different parts of the world and always had big gardens, you know, almost always had big gardens. And so I just really... 
I love it. I love it. In the winter, I love it. It's like having jewels in your cupboard, you know. <laughs> I love all the different jars of things, jellies. and not, I'm not a big jam eater, but I love making hot pepper jelly and things like that. So let's, More savories than sweets uh, is what I'm interested in. But. So let's start by explaining what is the difference between canning and pickling? Well, canning is usually something that won't have any vinegar in it, won't have like a natural preservative in it. So you're going to have to cook it down and then, um, you know, then we sterilize the jars, fill them, and then we put it in a, I don't have a pressure canner. They just, they kind of make me nervous. So I just have a great big, huge uh, saucepan that we can them in, maybe six or eight jars, six or seven jars at a time. Um, and it depends on the length of, you know, depending on the size of the jar and what's in it. Um, it can be for different lengths of time. But since our major thing is uh, usually involves tomatoes of some kind, uh, we're usually canning 500 milliliter jars for about um, 25 minutes. So now that people are harvesting their backyard tomatoes and cucumbers and basil and maybe don't know where to start, what what should they be focusing on? Well, finding a couple of good recipes, something very simple and basic, and what you like to eat. I always say, no matter whether it's something that you're going to grow or something you're going to cook, make sure it's something that you really want to eat. And if you're going to go to the trouble of canning it, then it's something that you really like to to eat in the winter. I love the idea of fermented pickles, but I hardly ever eat them. So I like to make bread and butter pickles, and they're super easy because you're using vinegar. You don't have to can them. The vinegar and the sugar or honey, whichever you prefer to use, is going to preserve them. So I think using something, you know, something that you know you're going to use is where to start. And uh, we also don't eat a lot of pasta in our house, so I like to make uh, my tomato sauce super simple. It's basically cooking down the tomatoes, maybe adding a little bit of garlic, salt and pepper, a couple of bay leaves or basil or whatever, and then I can it like that. And when we open it, we can use it for all kinds of different things. I can cook it down more or add things to make a pasta sauce, or I can put it in soups or casseroles or so it's very, um, it makes it much more versatile than just having a, a huge cupboard full of, I mean, a cupboard full of tons of um, tomato sauce. So for a beginner, it, it is a bit scary at first because it seems like there's a lot of chemistry from boiling water, temperature, acidity levels, which, you know, frankly, could scare a lot of people. Describe to me everything that a novice needs to get started. Well, I would say that uh, it depends on what they're going to use, but you want you want jars, which is a, uh, going to be a bit of a difficult thing at the moment. They need to be good, good, good quality canning jars, so they're not going to split if they're, you're boiling them. Um, we do. I, I sterilize my jars extremely simply, so I just boil water. I put the canning jars in like a big baking pan or a big huge cookie sheet on a cookie sheet, and I fill them with the boiling water, and I let them sit there while I'm finishing off the sauce or whatever it is I'm going to put in them. So you just need some, you know, very, very, very basic um, kitchen equipment that I think almost everyone will have. Uh, the one thing, though, that I find is super, um, has been a, um, a life changer over the last maybe 10, 20 years for me is just buying I would call it a mooley, but uh, Lee Valley, if you know Lee Valley, mm-hmm. um, sells them. And it, you can put all your tomatoes or your peppers or whatever in there. And it, once they're cooked, and it, you just turn the handle, it's all, it's all hand-operated, there's no electricity, and it will take out all the seeds and the skins. And then you've got a really nice, smooth product to start work with. A little different from generations ago when our grandmothers were, were doing this. It's making yeah, it well, easier. You know, and I, I grew up uh, where there were a lot of, uh, uh, you know, lovely ethnic communities in my, in my, where I grew up in Toronto and uh, the garages would be full of 
cookers and huge pots and the entire family would get together and do things. I, I love that idea. I wish it would start happening more again. So you did allude to this earlier, the shortage of mason jars. Now, I did read that in Prince Edward Island, people were doing everything from just to get their hands on them. They were swapping produce for jars. Uh, so I, so this, this shortage seems to have spread right across Canada? Oh, yes, it has. Uh, you can't, I mean, I went out just to find new lids last night because um, I put a lot, we put a lot of our very small seed into canning jars and I'm trying to, you know, substitute those, take those out of the canning jars and put them in something else while I can use the jars until, until we can get more. And I couldn't even, it's always that good. This is another tip actually. When you're canning, if you're reusing jars and lids, always make sure that that top lid, the inside part mm-hmm. of the ring is new. Right. That right. you need to get new. And I, and I, that hasn't been in shortage, but I couldn't find any yesterday. And one store told me that they had them all on back or everything on back order, but it won't be until next year. So, so online sales as well. And this is obviously due to the, the popularity this year because of the pandemic, I would assume. Yes, and the popularity of gardening, because now people have big gardens and they want to know what to do with all their <laughs> produce. So there's no alternates. You can't, there, there's no alternate jars available? You know, I would say that the only way you could do it, if you have a big freezer, then the alternate way is to put it in any jar you can, your old jam jars or anything you have collected in your house and, and uh, freeze them. My final question to you, as an expert uh, who's been doing this, preserving food for a long time, what are some of your go-tos that people keep coming back for and telling you, please make this again and again? I, I, think, I think the tomato sauce, the very simple, basic tomato sauce that I said, we use that over and over and over again. Hot pepper jelly, I also give it as gifts. It's really, it's very simple to make and it, um, everybody always likes it. Um, I make my sauces pretty simple and mostly it's sauce I'm always doing. I Oh, um, I am going to try this year, though, some fermented hot sauce. So mm. that will be, we'll see if that works. I, I think it will be popular if I can get it, if I can get it right. I can't keep hot sauce at home. We go through it a lot. <laughs> well, that's great. Well, now that I think... I've found a really easy recipe, so I'm hoping it'll work. Well, now that we've made everyone starving and wanting to go into their kitchen to eat, we're running out of time. So thank you so much for this, Colette. I oh, really appreciate that. Okay, take care. You take care. Bye-bye. That was Colette Murphy from Seed Company, Urban Harvest. And that brings us to the end of this week's edition of the Zoomer Week in Review. I'm Christine Ross, in for Libby Snymer. Thanks for joining me today. Be sure to come back next week to stay up to date with all things Zoomer worldwide. Zoomer Week in Review is produced by Zeev Huddy, Christine Ross, and Paul Thomas. Technical producer, Justin Eacock. Executive producer, Moses Nimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.